1: Ah, it's Tell folks. April the 21st. It's a Thursday, so glad you're joining us. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for joining us for Herd Tell. looks a little different if you're watching on the YouTube. That's because I'm currently traveling, so we're recording this from a undisclosed location in a nondescript, economically priced hotel room as I'm on the road. But never fear, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to turn down the noise of the news cycle, going to get to some good information, get a great guest today and we're going to push on as best we can. A couple different items we want to touch on today. Great story to end the program with. One of the victims of the Boston Marathon bombing uh, back in 2013 finished the Boston Marathon. She did it with her prosthetic leg. In between there and here, she had done it before. She has failed at it before. She was hit by a car and had to rehab that on top of her injuries from the bombing. Great story on human perseverance to end our show on a happy note. Unfortunately, we've got some Unpleasantness between here and there. We've got police out in Santa Ana, California, playing Disney songs loudly during their traffic stops and interaction with the public because they think if it goes on YouTube, it'll get taken down for copyright infringement. We'll talk a little bit about accountability a little bit later on in the show. Also, um, continuing our coverage of the war in Ukraine, Russia's war of aggression. We have talked about it before. It's going to have long rippling consequences, things like food. Things like uh, the geopolitical order, but also now financially. uh, There's some troubling stuff coming out of the IMF and the World Bank chief talking about how things with debt from the pandemic, where they told all these developing countries, don't worry about your debt during the pandemic, just get the money you need. Well, now there's a crisis, and that's going to cause things like predatory debt to maybe places like China, who may not forgive that debt and may be looking to swoop in. We'll cover that story in just a little bit great guest today benjamin ianian uh we're going to talk about that bill in florida again uh that has been dubbed a lot of different things but what does it actually say we posted the text of it at ordinary-times.com you can read it for yourself he read it for himself he's been writing about it we're going to turn down the noise on that also the byproduct of that is the disney explosion the state of florida or more specifically ron desantis and the online Versus Disney, who's decided to take up the flaming sword on this particular topic. We'll talk about all that with Benjamin Ianian, and another great Young Voices contributor a little bit later on the show. But first, uh, let's talk Donald Trump and Piers Morgan. Uh, and in this particular case, we have uh, two people whose main business and favorite thing to talk about is themselves. And they decided to have an interview where they could do just that. Now, normally we don't go to Deadline, which is a Hollywood and entertainment website to talk politics, but we have to here because this is definitely more entertainment than politics. Here's the deal, Um, as our president would say, Piers Morgan is not what you would call a reliable source. He's an entertainer. Uh, He comes from the tabloid world in the British journalism. Now, people got used to seeing him on reality TV shows and stuff, but he knows how to throw elbows. He knows how to do the dirty end of news entertainment, and he's doing so here. He has a new TV show coming out, and of course, to do that, he pulled out the biggest name in his Rolodex, called up Donald Trump. He's interviewed him before. He interviewed him on Air Force One a few years ago. So he's been promoting it But he's promoted it as being a contentious interview. And all through the day yesterday, there was these little press clippings and online clippings about how Donald Trump had stormed off when Piers Morgan bravely confronted him about the election. And Donald Trump's continued baseless claims and lies, frankly, that the 2020 election was stolen from him. Well, there's a little problem with that. Uh, There's an update now. This is from Deadline. NBC News is reporting that an audio tape supplied by former President Donald Trump's spokesman show he did not storm off the set of his Piers Morgan interview, as some outlets reported. The interview with Morgan is part of a marketing campaign to hype his new talk TV, which bows Monday. NBC News reports the audio shows the two men thanked each other and laughed at the conclusion of the interview. That was a great interview, Morgan says on the audio. Trump agrees with a yeah. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, Morgan said. Folks, there's a reason we continually go back to pro wrestling as a good analogy for how politics and the media work in America in the year of our Lord 2020. It's called a work. See, here's how pro wrestling started way back when uh, you had the two guys that would fight each other at the carnival. Well, at some point along the line, they figured out that like, hey, instead of beating the tar out of each other, why don't we work together? We'll pull our punches. We'll make it look like we're hurting each other without actually hurting each other. And we still make the exact same amount of money, but we don't get beat up every night. And, oh, by the way, when we go from this town to this other town, we can switch it up. You can be the good guy. I'll be the bad guy. And they learned how to pull their punches. They learned how to do wrestling maneuvers. They learned how to do slams and things that look like it really hurt. And it is physical. It's not fake. It does hurt. But it doesn't hurt as bad as it's portrayed. It's called selling. It's called work. It's called cooperation. And thus, the modern incarnation of what we know as pro wrestling, which is choreographed and planned and manipulated sports entertainment, came into being. I can't think of a better analogy for how politics work, especially entertainment politics, which is what people like Piers Morgan does. Uh, He knows how to manipulate. He knows how to get a crowd. He knows how to pump the story. So was there really a story here or not? It almost doesn't matter. The story in the story is we're once to begin being manipulated. You always got to be careful with people like Piers Morgan. Uh, He does things like storm off his own set. He did this recently when the weatherman pushed back at him a little bit for him being the pretentious jackass that he often is. It happens with President Donald Trump a lot. He's become a master of this sort of thing, manipulating the media. And a lot of media has resulted in doing the same thing. They do it being against Donald Trump and other people. There's manipulation everywhere. There's things when I'm online on, on Twitter, I'll call it a work because clearly there's some cooperation involved. Clearly, it's not all as it seems. Clearly, it's people doing one thing while claiming it's another. we got to have discernment in our modern times. So in the grand scheme of things, with things like a shooting war in Ukraine and a very serious midterm election and the pending 2024 presidential election that's just going to overtake everything as soon as we're done with the midterms, is Piers Morgan doing a work with Donald Trump that big of a deal, either with the cooperation of the former president or because he just wanted to hype it up and try to get his new show some ratings? Not really, but it's a continuation on a theme, and that theme is very simple. People out there want to try to get you fired up. They want to loop you in emotionally. It's good for us to turn down the noise, get to what's really going on, and not get looped into that nonsense. Because people like Piers Morgan, who are not good faith actors, who are not good sources of information, and who, frankly, for the most part, are not worth our time, are going to scream louder and louder for our attention. We should keep it on other things that are important. And that's what we try to do here. Turn down the noise. Skip the caterwauling, especially caterwauling from folks like Piers Morgan, who has a long track record of caterwauling and, quite frankly, being a jerk while doing so. Turn down that noise. Get to the information that matters. Talk to people who know what they're talking about and are good faith actors and make the world a little better place. One less caterwauling at a time. More heard Tell right after this. Welcome back to Hurt Uh We've been covering this. We've been mentioning it as we cover uh, Russia's war of aggression and all their war crimes in Ukraine. We keep trying to remind folks this is going to have wide-ranging effects worldwide for a long time to come. Uh, let's go to the BBC. Crisis within a crisis is coming, World Bank warns. World Bank President David Malpass has warned of a human catastrophe as food prices rise sharply in the wake of Russian invasion of Ukraine. Like the COVID-19 pandemic, he said the food crisis would hit the poorest people in the world the hardest because they will, quote, eat less and have less money for everything else, such as schooling. In an interview with the BBC economics editor, Fasil Islam, Malpass said that global food hours are large by historical standards and there's enough food in the world to feed everybody. But there will have to be a process put in place to get the food where it's most in need. The World Bank chief also raised concerns of a knock-on crisis within a crisis. Arising from the inability of developing countries to service their large pandemic debts amid rising food and energy prices, as many as 60% of the poorest countries right now are either in debt distress or at a high risk of being in debt distress, he said. He advised countries, particularly those with the unsustainable debt, to act early on strategies to reduce their debt burden. Along these same lines, um, acknowledgement by the World Bank president that we have to be worried about the developing country debt crisis is very significant. This is from the BBC, their uh, economics editor, Faisal Islam, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. The talk on the sidelines here at the IMF and World Bank meetings is that the rich countries told emerging economists not to worry about borrowing in order to help them suppress the pandemic. But now those countries are wondering if those record debts will be written off campaigning groups are preparing mobilizations over panic debt jubilee but there's silence from the rich countries as to whether it'll actually happen or not and there this is a very new dynamic these days the bankers to who these sums are owed are no longer just in the west china here we go again is now very broadly owed as much as the entire collection of western creditors known as the paris club how will it respond to calls to leniency or to repayment of loans World Bank President David Malpass said China, quote, they have different rules, for example, contracts that have non-disclosure clauses, meaning you can't share the terms with other people. That makes it very hard to restructure those debts. China has also secured its lending against ports and natural resources. Sri Lanka is a case in point right now. The unwinding of all of this might not be orderly and could have significant geopolitical consequences. Let me answer that question for you. No, they're not going to forgive it because China has been spreading their imperialism through the world, through predatory debt. We've seen it in Africa. We're going to cover, we're working on a story right now in Sri Lanka. That country is getting decimated because of debt, and they're screaming for help, and China's going to show up and help. The only problem, they're not going to do it for free. They want a little piece of theirs. They've taken over airports in Africa. They're looking to take over infrastructure in Sri Lanka and other places. China is going to use predatory debt to expand their global interest and they're gonna use this crisis to do it. So it's a food crisis, it's a monetary crisis, it's a debt crisis, and the Putin's illegal war in Ukraine is gonna have widespread consequences. One of them, all that predatory debt that was taken on during the pandemic, especially if it's owed to places like China, keep an eye on it, folks. It's going to rack up much more human misery in the years to come. More Hertel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. This is going to be a fun one. Uh, hot topic issue, uh, but we're going to go way up north to talk about it. Our friend Benjamin Ayanian. Now, see, now I practice it and then I blew it anyway. You say it. You say yeah, your name, my friend.
0: You did your best. It's close, though. It's Ayanian.
1: Ayanian. That's A and a Y. And it, Look, you can't be throwing them vowels and consonants together on a hillbilly. That's just not fair. <laughs> Benjamin Ayanian uh, joining us. Uh, he's up in Minnesota, uh, originally by way of Virginia. How are you doing, my friend?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on
1: today. Anytime. Another one of these great Young Voices contributors whose names I butcher, but their content and takes are very good and you should hear them out. Uh, Let's talk about this Disney thing real quick. Uh, We know about the parental right bill. Let's start with that, Um, because I think a lot of people skipped over that portion of it. We did it at ordinary times.com. We posted the actual bill. It's the PDF's only seven pages. It's actually really only about five pages of actual text. Let's start there. So everybody's on the same song sheet here. What's actually in the bill? What's actually not in the bill? What does it do? What does it not do?
0: The bill is a lot of it is about disclosure um, in regards to specific information relating to, to children's mental and physical health. It really allows parents to be informed about what their kids are doing in school. But the specific, the specific part of the bill that that has garnered all of the media attention really relates to this one section about prohibiting institutional teaching about sexual orientation and gender identity um, before third grade, right? Kindergartners through third graders cannot be taught about sexual orientation and gender identity. And that has earned the bill, um, the colloquial name of the don't say gay bill. And interestingly enough, if you go to the PDF on the website and command F, or if you have a Mac, hit command F and search the word gay, the word gay actually does not pop up a single time in this bill. And the exact language just, strictly speaking, prohibits institutional discussions of these topics K through third grade. And so it does not stop a teacher from talking about their partner or a student from talking about their homosexual parents that they have them. These these discussions can can be had. There's just not allowed to be any institutional lecturing about these topics K through third grade.
1: Now, there was some pushback, and I think it's a fair point to raise about the specific language of what is and isn't institutional lecturing and the way this bill was phrased, uh, the enforcement mechanism, for lack of a better term of it, was that the State Board of Education would oversee this. Well, that all sounds okay on paper, but that is a little bit nebulous because, you know, there's no guidelines there. It just, well, the State Board will deal with it. Well, that don't have a whole lot of guardrails to it. Uh, what about that pushback and that criticism? Is that fair? Or is that something that you think they're going to have to come back and revisit at some point? Because I'm assuming this is probably going to wind up in court one way or the other. Um, that's probably one of those areas that they're going to have to revisit this legislation one way or the other, isn't it?
0: I think there there can be concern about the discretion involved there for overseeing what exactly constitutes institutionalized um, lecturing. And I think that that probably needs to be parsed out a little bit more. There There will be more specifics that need to be hashed out and like you said it will go to court I'm really interested to see what type of arguments are brought um, in regard to to that piece of the legislation legislation but I don't think that we're gonna see a ton of issues with this because at the end of the day there's already not institutional lecturing about sexual orientation gender identity k through third grade there's actually a a small article in um, a local Tampa Bay outlet questioning, you know, what does the bill actually do in a lot of ways regarding this specific topic? Because like I just said, those topics are already not lectured about in these grades. And so as long as they're not bringing in third-party speakers, as long as teachers aren't separating certain slots of class time to dedicate to teaching about different things like sexual orientation, gender identity, queer theory, all of these different things there. I don't foresee a huge issue um, arising from the language that's in the bill.
1: Now, the other part of this that got a lot of furor was the teacher-student relationship. I don't think it's refined to just this issue. I think a lot of the other things we've been discussing, like the COVID stuff, like the CRT stuff, I think this is another example of how there should be a partnership between the teacher, the student, and the parents. And that partnership is just broken on a lot of levels, not just on these hot button issues. I think some of this is coming from that because part of the premise, if you're for both sides really that are having a hard time with this bill, is these are things that just need to be discussed out between the parents and the students and the teachers and the administrators. And for the on behalf of the students. And we're going straight to legislation and litigation instead of leaving, having these conversations. Does this feel like part? I don't think we can separate this from the CRT debate, from the COVID debate, from all the other stuff that's been happening in education over the last couple of years, because these things all build. I think this was just one of them pressure things where when this came off, a lot of those other issues got kind of folded into it. And that's why you kind of got the details of the actual what's going to happen in the classroom. Part of the bill got skipped over. Does it feel that way to you?
0: I I think that there's a lot of discussion that needs to be had between educators, parents, and students, like you just pointed out. One issue is that at least what I'm hearing here in Minnesota, we've had certain, you know, teacher strikes in Minnesota. Um, there's a lot of people protesting against parents' involvement in schooling. You know, they teachers feel a lot of times some teachers, and I want to lump them all into one category, feel that they what they teach in school classrooms should not be subject to the whims of parents. And that has been a big discussion throughout the country lately. And there needs to be more dialogue between parents, students, and teachers. And we are jumping, I would agree pretty quickly to legislation, um, to litigation. This bill isn't um, personally from a a personal political philosophy standpoint, this bill would not be the route that I I would like to see states start going, I would not love to see the outlawing of certain topics um, in schools, you know I with more of a classical liberal libertarian bend that I have. I would prefer to see you know, a school choice system where people can take their tax dollars in the form of vouchers to different schools and the local school boards can have more discretion about what they teach in their classrooms. And then if a parent, as long as they have disclosure about what their child's being taught, if, uh, if they don't like it, they can take their kid to another school, for example. Um, and so it is a little worrisome to see all of these issues, like you said, the CRT issue, the COVID issue, And now the the don't say gay bill issue or the parental rights issue um, really come full steam ahead to to a legislation and litigation standpoint. um, I would like to see more more dialogue between the parties involved, like you just pointed out.
1: Yeah. Talking to Benjamin. I can't get that other end in there. I'm going to keep working on, buddy. We got more to talk about yet Um, to kind of get get this rounded back around, though. There's one term in here that's going to be legally problematic. It's a term that educators have been fighting with since there's been educators and students age appropriate. Um, how do we define that? How do we work on that? Like, we, we can agree that there's certain things that you don't teach at a certain age, but we don't seem to be able to agree on what those ages are. Is it kindergarten to third grade, like these You What do you do? Um, I'll quote the middle school principal that, of my youngest children's middle school. I thought he was brilliant when he did his intro every year. He would say, listen, they're coming in here as little kids and they're leaving as basically young adults in middle school, because that's, you know, you can just sit there and the difference between a sixth grader, a fifth grader and an eighth grader, like it's just night and day, the developmental differences. How do we start dealing with this? Because again, if we're going to go to litigation and legislation right off the bat, you're going to lose the nuance of childhood development. This is touchy even without all the hot button issues. This is hard stuff to parse out how are we going to get to a place where about age appropriate when we can't even talk to each other about some basic stuff like what we are and are not going to teach in a classroom?
0: You you raise a great point. Age appropriate does not have an agreed upon definition. The bill only talks about K through 3rd graders not being taught about sexual identity and or gender identity and sexual orientation, but like you said for older children it just says you can be taught age appropriate material. And that I think will be a large a large topic of debate moving forward with certain legislation because that's going to have to be interpreted by someone by school boards by courts by parents you know they're the ones that are going to be able to bring lawsuits against schools for certain actions that they take and I think it'll be really interesting to see if a legal definition comes out of litigation moving forward but it is really hard to, to think that we can make bills about teaching our children age-appropriate things if we can't agree on the definition of that term. And so I'm not exactly sure what, what will then be taught or acceptable to be taught uh, moving forward for older kids, but that's definitely something that will have to be clarified.
1: Yeah, and that's another reason we need to be real careful about uh, knee-jerking out legislation quick because it goes to black and white and they need to parse these things out carefully talking to our friend benjamin ianian i'm getting getting that might be your
0: third your third pronunciation in the three
1: times i we'll keep at it until we get it right we're going to take a quick break be right back with our friend ben uh after the break uh there's always a good guy and a bad guy in these stories once social media gets a hold of them uh this one roped in the house of Mouse, disney the big entertainment name on the block is now involved in this the state of florida And them are beefing and social media has got all kinds of thoughts about it. We're going to talk about that. He's been writing about that in spectator.org. More with our friend Ben Ianian right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. We have been practicing my pronunciation of Ben Ianian during the break so that I can properly use his name. I apologize. We're doing our best with it, my friend. Okay. Uh, the reason this had the initial burst of the don't say gay bill and that sort of stuff, it has taken on a second life on social media, especially because now we've got Disney involved. Uh, before we get into the, the specifics of that, how in the world did the House of Mouse get involved on a school bill in Florida?
0: So originally, Disney's CEO, Bob chapek I hope I'm pronouncing his last name right, um, did not do a whole lot to speak out against this bill. Disney did not take a formal, strong stance against the bill. And for weeks, the, the employees of the company were expressing dissent. Um, there was discontent growing within the company. And Disney has a lot of employees in Florida. And traditionally, it's been a huge ally to the LGBTQ community. And so employees were really upset that the company was not taking a stronger, more public stance against the bill. And what followed from that is walkout protests from their employees. A number of employees actually walked off the job and also denounced certain donations that Disney makes to certain employees. And Disney then finally took a strong public vocal stance, releasing statements and talking to the media about how they wish to get this bill repealed at the end of the day.
1: Now, let's uh, have a little bit of an adult conversation about Disney here because people, are, people have strong feelings about Disney because it's such a classic brand. It's, it's the entertainment brand now in a lot of ways. The Disney Plus streaming, they got Star Wars, they got Marvel. We know it's a Leviathan. Their support of the uh, LGBT community, this is not new, uh, especially their employees in Florida. It has been well known for decades and decades. I remember 20 years ago, a friend of mine, I grew up, went, went down to Florida and worked at Disney for that exact reason, because it was a welcoming community in no small part. Um, th- this stuff is all well known. It's pretty disingenuous for people to act like, oh my gosh, Disney supports this stuff because they're not exactly subtle about it. But then you've taken to writing about this at the same time of we're probably doing everybody a disservice and all sides of debate a disservice by trying to slam corporate overlords as some kind of measuring stick on whether these issues are good or not. When you sat down to write about this and Disney's involved, did you just kind of roll your eyes a little bit and like, man, do, do people not know what Disney is? Or did you parse it out of like, well, Disney's the biggest one in the block. So, of course, that's going to be the one we're going to deal with. How did it land with you?
0: Yeah, Disney obviously was the company that I focused on in my article. I did mention other companies that signed a petition denouncing anti-LGBTQ legislation um, in reaction to the Don't Say Gay Bill, the parental rights bill in Florida. And I focused on Disney because they were the loudest voice, um, as you stated. And I did roll my eyes a little bit, not because they were being an ally to a specific community, but because it's... It's interesting to see people look to corporations and their CEOs as arbiters of truth, as arbiters of morality. And well, because like I pointed out in my article that they they have one incentive and that's to make profit. And at the end of the day, what they speak out on and what they choose not to speak out on comes down to their bottom line. I pointed out that companies... You know, denouncing this bill, companies that are supporting Ukraine in their conflict against Russia. They rarely say anything about what goes on in China under the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and so, actually, I remember um, Daryl Morey, the, the NBA GM, um, the Houston Rockets, tweeted out support for Hong Kong in their protests against the Chinese Communist Party and LeBron James, the best player in the world at the time, and the NBA all release statements condemning his words. And at the same time, the NBA will write Black Lives Matter on the court. They will have players wear social justice slogans on the back of their jerseys. They did all this um, back in the COVID years. And so it's really interesting to see people look to corporations and their CEOs as figures of morality when their principles are so inconsistent, when their bottom line dictates what, what issues they take up, and they have the right to do that as long as they're not violating their fiduciary duties to their their shareholders. But at the end of the day, it just muddies conversation. It it elevates certain opinions over others incredibly arbitrarily and makes political civil discourse among ordinary citizens that much harder.
1: Yeah, and I'm old enough to remember, the last time we did this with Disney, back in 97, we're going to boycott Disney, uh, and it's a lot of the same stuff. Back then, it was over, uh, Ellen DeGeneres was coming out on ABC, that made people mad, it was a lot of gay issues, they, had a, they were having um, uh, gay pride days at the parks, which upset some certain folks, and I think it was mostly led by the Southern Baptist Convention at the time, back in 1997, we're going to boycott Disney. Well, here we are in 2022. You can see how well that worked out for them. Um, What is it about folks going to boycotts? Look, I, I don't like boycotts. If I don't like a company and what they're doing, I just don't get their product. I don't make a big pose about it on social media. What is it about this boycott mindset, especially on a hot button social issue or a cultural issue like this? And then when you get a big name like Disney, which is probably the biggest entertainment name you can think of, why is that just like the, the, the blue light for the bugs? They just got to fly to that zapper every single time. What do you think that is?
0: I think, I think people realize the role that their money plays and that in effect, in a free market economy, we vote with our dollars. And if we don't like what a CEO or a corporation says, we can always stop buying their products. One problem is when we make it a, such a large collective issue, and try and rope everyone else into into our specific battle. For example, Um, one issue with that is it really divides the public. Now, there might be a red line, you know, there might, there has to be a red line at some point, something egregious. For example, if a company comes out in support of, of something egregious, like Nazism, that might be a red line that everyone can get behind and say, okay, it's time to stop supporting this company. But more nuanced and contentious public issues that have grievances legitimate grievances or legitimate misunderstandings on both sides of an issue it is relatively dangerous to see people jump to boycotts so often because it, then we we go we risk going down the road of okay conservatives are going to shop here And liberals are going to shop here or progressives will shop here and libertarians will shop here. And all it does is further the growing divide that we've seen over the years. I think one thing that leads people to jump to boycott so quickly is our ability to reach each other so easily. Now, it's not hard to to organize a boycott at this point on social media to a certain extent to get people on your side, start a hashtag get it trending on Twitter, all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands, millions of people are seeing this tweet. And it's a lot easy to band together to try and to try and make change. So if someone has a really strong opinion on a specific topic, and they want to see change fast, it isn't irrational for them to try and start a boycott and to, to, to go to social media to grow support quickly. Um, but it, it does it does lead to the possibility where our political views don't only separate us at the, at the voting box. Now it's going to separate where we shop, where we, like, where we live all the time, who we interact with. And I don't think that that is a, an outcome anybody wants to see.
1: It's part of it, too, um, talking to Benjamin Ianian. I think the part with Disney that gets overlooked, we were talking about this with our friend Stephen Ken a couple of days ago, People with Disney, because it's in your home, because it's those stories that are kind of, you know, it's our modern mythology in a lot of ways, uh, the Disney stories. They feel like they have ownership of that, even though they don't. And then when it becomes something where it becomes the hot button issues, people do make it more personal that way. And then it's what you're talking about in your article where you say the truth becomes an afterthought and everything starts getting arbitrarily elevated. People internalize and they personalize it a lot faster when something like Disney's involved, because now it's like, oh, this isn't just the political trend. This is my childhood memory you're fooling with. And then that sort of thing. I, I think that's a dangerous thing to go to because then your bearing starts getting lost. Your principles start getting lost. And more importantly, to the point is it becomes you've now been personally aggrieved and you start losing your ability to see the other people as people and not just something that's done damage to you. And I think that might be where some of the damage on some of this stuff goes. Is that too far to think of it that way? Because like you said, social media, this stuff's all amplified. We're all, you know, you, you know, who's on your side and who isn't instantly now. Facebook's even worse. That's why I don't have it. Um, you know, we're, 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 we want to pick teams instantly on every issue the moment they happen. Is that not a lot of what's going on here and we just don't really have a good way of handling it?
0: I think that information moves so quickly that we feel impulses to pick a side right away. I think that that's true. You log on to social media and everyone on your feed is picking a side on a hot button issue. If you haven't picked one, you feel left out. You feel like you're behind. And you might even feel morally beneath other people because they're all becoming moral issues every issue now is a question of your morality these days and i think that that does stem with specifically with disney it does stem to a degree with the emotions involved from watching your childhood station um having to take a side on these issues and, and really feeling like feeling your identity be so involved in an issue that maybe we don't have all of the information on right away. I mean, we, the beginning of our conversation today was about certain things that are gonna have to be clarified moving forward. Those are all parts of the, the new law that we don't know a ton of specifics about yet. Um, and even the, the pieces that we do know, there is large misunderstanding of them and people's emotions get built up and they, go, they see everybody commenting on it. They hear the term don't say gay being repeated on and on and on. And it just builds, it builds your identity with the issue. It builds your emotions involved in it to where you feel like you have to pick a side. And Disney is either not doing enough or they're doing too much. And those are really the only two stances. I actually did not write about this issue on purpose for weeks until more had developed, I actually submitted my article um, to my editors late in the news cycle. They told me I'd have to get this done really quickly so that we don't miss the boat on it. Um, because I decided to wait weeks before I had more information to hear arguments play out on both sides to see what different outlets would do with it. But with how quickly we can consume and put out information, that's it's not intuitive anymore. Um, I had to make a conscious effort to do that. As soon as it came out, I wanted to start writing on it. But I had to tell myself, you got to gather more information. But yeah, with with social media and, and everything at our fingertips, it's really it's really hard to do that.
1: Yeah, but I commend you for doing that because that's the right way to do it. I've got the same problem with me, whether it's at Ordinary Times or doing this show right here. Um, on Her Tell, I've told people like, hey, here's this little two-minute blurb on this issue, but we're not going to really talk about it until we can get somebody on later. Or we'll get somebody that knows. Or, hey, this don't feel right. Let's let this breathe. You don't lose social media points for letting something breathe a day or two, and you usually end up paying off, especially something like legislation where until that final bill gets signed, it's probably going to change on you. Um, let's go there to finish this conversation out, round it back up where we started. You started your piece by talking about what was actually in the bill. Um talk about a minute why you do that because these things are all public record uh they're pdfs you can you can read the bills you can read them states like florida florida's actually got a really good system you can read them every time they go through a committee and all the change they actually have the markups right on them um talk about the process that folks can follow to turn down the noise they can do what you do they can read these bills for themselves just tell people how they can actually do that get to the pdfs and inform themselves so that they don't get caught up in those cycles we were talking about, where people are just talking over each other and past each other.
0: Well, one great way to find the bills is to go to your website, actually, because you post the PDFs of them. Free plug. I
1: love it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Yeah,
0: anytime. Um, But it's really easy to find these bills, especially in a state like Florida. If you read an article about a bill, normally they'll just have the name of the bill. If you google that name, you can find the actual law code. It'll pop up on Google. If you read certain outlets like the Wall Street Journal, the Wall Street Journal almost always has a link to actual bill PDFs or writes out the letters and numbers associated with specific bills before they're passed. It's really it really takes, you know, an extra 5 minutes at most of effort to find the actual PDFs. One reason your at the beginning of your question was why don't people tend to do this. I think it's because, especially federal legislation, they're a gazillion pages long. The number of pages, the number of bills even, but really the number of pages in all of our laws has grown exponentially over the decades. Nobody wants to sit and read a 1,000 pages worth of a bill that is subject to change. And then no one wants to read a 1,000 pages of a law that is going to take them you know, weeks on end to read. People have lives to lead. People have jobs to work. But a bill like this, if you just look it up, like you said, it's only seven pages long. It's about five of actual text. And so I think that it's really important that that we decide to look at the, the bills that are the subject of such hot button issues. If it's something that has everybody riled up, for example, they don't say gay bill. Everyone is sh- tweeting out "gay, gay, gay." Like I will say, "gay." Maybe go to the bill and just hit Command F and search the word "gay" to see if it has anything about prohibiting people from using that term. If there's a certain part of you know a federal budget bill that seems to have everybody up in arms, you can Command F keywords and you'll find that part of the budget within you know the gazillion pages of the the entire budget. And so it, it's not easy. But we do live in a democracy, and I do think that we owe it to ourselves and each other to be informed to a certain degree on topics that we're going to opine about. If we want to debate on social media, if we want to debate with our friends or our professors or whoever is in our lives, um, it wouldn't hurt, especially if it's about legislation, to decide to read the actual bill instead of... Reading what other people have to say about the bill. One quick example I want to give is the, the Georgia voting rights bill oh, back, you know, a couple of years ago, the Georgia voting laws that were changed. Um, CEOs like the CEO of Delta, the, the CEO of Coca-Cola all came out and spoke out against the voting bills in Georgia as you know, voter, they they called them voter suppression bills. And we heard it in the media over and over. But if you read parts of these bills, you would see things like no excuse absentee voting was allowed for everybody. You know, two Saturdays of early voting were made part of the voting process. Ballot drop boxes were made permanent parts of the voting process. And so specifics of bills are really important and they get lost in public conversation a lot.
1: Yeah, outstanding stuff. I really enjoyed this conversation. Benjamin Ianian. Uh, our friend, we're going to have you back on, uh, but till they see you again on our program, let folks know where they can follow you, your writing, your social media, what you have going on until we get you back on Hurtel again.
0: You can follow me on Twitter at Benjamin Ianian. You can also follow me on Instagram. If you just search my name, Benjamin Ianian, it'll pop up. I have a public account. That's probably the best way to keep up with my writing because I don't write for a specific outlet, I just pitch where I can get in.
1: Yep. Well, you're always welcome to write with us anytime you want to. We will definitely have you back. Uh, great conversation. Check out his pieces in uh, spectator.org and elsewhere. We'll put links in the show notes to those. Ben, good job, buddy. Appreciate the conversation. We'll see you again soon.
0: Thanks for having me on.
1: Yes, sir. Soon too. Uh, Welcome back to Heard to Tell. This story is just about infuriating on CNN.com. A California lawmaker says police in Santa Ana have been playing loud copyrighted music so that video of them on patrol would likely be taken down if it was posted online. Councilmember Jonathan Ryan Hernandez said at a city council meeting on Tuesday, he wants lawmakers to ban the alleged practice after a viral video from early April showed officers apparently blasting loud music on a residential street in Santa Ana while investigating a report of a stolen vehicle later at night disney songs such as you have a friend in me from toy story and bruno from encanto can be heard in the video posted by santa and santa ana audits a youtube channel dedicated to filming interactions with the santa ana police this is out in california of course videos posted to youtube and other video hosting sites are often monitored for potential copyright infringement and risk being removed therefore limiting how widely the content like the santa ana police interaction Could be shared online while YouTube hasn't received any requests to remove the viral video. A spokesman for the company says CNN that they have a system in place that helps track copyright claims, but it doesn't automatically remove a video containing copyrighted content. Quick pause here. Uh, The House of Mouse has their own way of getting around these things. They absolutely will rip down anything that even vaguely touches on a Disney intellectual property, anyway. The tactic of playing loud music comes. As officers are under scrutiny following the rise of bystanders filming police activities, incidents like George Floyd's death have emphasized the importance of recording these interactions and have even spurred some groups to publish apps that help preserve video. Uh, Let's just cut to the chase here. The police have to be accountable. If you are pro-police, you should be pro-police accountability because good police want accountability. Good police want bad officers weeded out. They want bad interactions stopped. They want bad things happening to the public from the police that are not justified to stop because it makes doing good police work way, way harder. Plus, it makes them look bad. Police, we seem to want to have this cognitive dissonance and forget that the police is the armed enforcement part of the government. And we're always talking about the government needing to be accountability. The armed portion of the government that has the power to detain you has the power to arrest you, and carries lethal force to compel you to do so, should be the most accountable part of our government. This sort of nonsense keeps that from happening. So, yeah, you can just roll your eyes and say it's silly. No, it's more important than that. It shows a deliberate attempt to not be accountable to the people in our society and in our government who should be the most accountable. More hotel right after this. Now let me see you go off like a Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. On the run edition, as we're in a hotel uh, on the road traveling. We always end on a good note or a happy note, uh, and we're going to try to do that here. Uh, great story. This is out of the Boston Globe. All Adrian Hazlitt wanted on Monday around 3.15 p.m. I really need... I'm really in need of champagne and french fries, she said moments after finishing the 2020 Boston Marathon, the 41-year-old ballroom dancer who lost a leg in the 2013 explosion, finished in five hours, 18 seconds, 18 minutes and 41 seconds, but she said afterwards that the hours flew by mostly because of the woman by her side. Hazlitt ran with a support runner, but it wasn't just any support, it was Marblehead native Saline Fanlanigan, the Olympic medalist and New York City Marathon champion Hazlitt, had approached Flanagan in December to help her reach her goal of finally running Boston again. Flanagan, who retired from pro running in 2019, was quick to commit. Seemed like the right choice. I didn't notice the mile markers until 22-23. She means the miles. Hazlitt told WBC after the race, not that I was feeling it in my body, but I didn't notice the mile markers. Just having so much fun with Shailene and with Boston and beyond, it was amazing. Hazlitt had tried to reach that point before. In fact, she had, after she had lost her legs, she did run. She finished 2016 on a prosthetic. She tried again in 2018, couldn't do it. She planned to return in 2019, but she faced another setback when she was struck by a car. She suffered injuries and had to go undergo surgery. We know the rest of the story. 2020's race was canceled. 2021's field was minimized due to the COVID. And then finally in 2022, Hazlitt got a chance. She couldn't hide her emotions about it. It was just so amazing. She said through the tears and I've been having through so much trauma and tried so many times to get to the starting line. I kept starting over and I'm proud of myself for getting through. Hazlitt said she felt shockingly good in the immediate aftermath of the race. I never felt more support and love from the city. She said, I think every runner can say that. I just can't believe that just happened. I'll remember every face and every sign and every dog and every baby along the course. Hazlitt was surrounded by cameras other than WBZ's at the conclusion. She said she's filming an IMAX movie, which she hopes will inspire kids whose bodies are different. If they can, quote, see someone like me running and completing something like this, they'll believe they can do anything. Hazlitt, of course, lost her leg in the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. A great story to end on today. That'll do it on for her tell. Uh, We're going to continue to bring you good news of turning down the noise of the news cycle, getting the good information, whether we're here, there, or yonder, traveling or not. Uh, thank you for joining us wherever you and yours are and wherever we're recording it from. We hope you're well. We hope you're well-fed. And we'll see you tomorrow for more Hurt All the music on Hurt is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.